Welcome to the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. My name is Steve Wopolinik. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and one of the founders of the Promethean Project. Our guests are people who have broke the chains of their limitations and found the strength of their potential. We offer their stories as inspiration and as guidance to help others navigate their quest to find their flame. Welcome back to episode 35. Your host, as always, Steve Opolinik, here on the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Khadija Tuit, who is a board-certified psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner and an overall amazing individual. We get to talk to her about her past and her journey and how it's really informed what she's doing today. We talk about stigma in many different forms related to race, mental health, and just overall perceptions of other people. We get into conversations about mental health disparities, families, individuals, and society, and how really the way our society is structured is more individualism versus a group collective and more about self than about healing and helping others. We talk about culture, diversity, and inclusion. I was so excited to have her on. Our good mutual friend, Megan, it connected us. And I really enjoyed the podcast and, and sitting down and talking with Khadijah and, and, and having an open and honest discussion. This is, this is an episode I've been really excited to have and really excited to release. We recorded a couple weeks ago. And I've been dying to put it out. So I'm really excited for you guys to take a listen. This is one of the only podcasts that are patented questions about superpowers and which we would love and which we have uh, isn't asked because I think it was pretty obvious throughout the whole conversation. And I I didn't want to break the rhythm of uh, the episode. So I hope you enjoy. Here's Dr. Khadijah to it. In a world where humanity's potential is imprisoned and locked away, our only hope is to break the chains and find our flame. I am honored to welcome to our podcast, Dr. Khadijah Tuit. Welcome, Khadijah. How are you? Thank you very much. That was, my, that was my game show host <laughs> voice. Welcome to the show. Very nice. <laughs> I don't have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> so we were just talking before. Um, no game face, no game show host yeah. voice do you have. So no one, if you're listening, don't expect any of that from Khadija because she doesn't have them. Um, but before we, we started officially recording, we were talking about how we got connected and just wanted to show, throw a quick shout out to Megan Thompson, as T as I call her. Um, she introduced you, us on Facebook. And so um, give her some love for providing the, the podcast for today. Big, big love to Megan. Thank you so much for the connection. It's always, um, always appreciated to enlarge the village. So thank you. Nice. I like that. That you know what? I think that might be the name of the podcast, Enlarging the Village. I like it. Let's go with it. Let's go. Okay. 
<laughs> I'm here, so uh, I'm gonna forget. I'm gonna forget about that until I edit, and then we're like, "Oh yeah, that's the name that we wanted to go with." <laughs> There's that piece. Um, so, Khadija, do you mind talking a little bit about yourself, who you are, what what you're doing, what your passions yeah. and loves are, all that fun stuff? Yeah. Um, um, so my name is Khadija, or Dr. Tuit. I just um, completed my doctorate degree, which is actually my sixth degree. Um, I am also a felon. So I, um, let's see, in 98, um, was convicted of, of felony um, federal drug charges. And if anybody knows, even when your conviction is over, it's never over. So right. that is a lifetime um, checkbox. And so I do keep my record open. Um, I, I have not sealed it for the um, sole purpose that um, there's other people who are in the same and have gone through the same situations that I have gone through. And honestly, that is the talent that most um, business and corporations should probably understand that they would want at their table because uh, those are the people that understand really what's going on at the granular level, um, but can explain it at the, right. uh, as a person like me at the executive level. Um, so for my journey, um, I grew up Muslim and um, initially went to Muslim school until I was about, I'd say, eight or nine. Um, but again, um, the 80s was the era of crack cocaine. So my right. parents, who are highly educated, my mother had a master's degree. My father worked um, construction in the union. But when new substances come out, people often don't, don't know the long term or the serious effects, which is what happened to two highly educated um, parents who were raising um, a large family. So we ended up, and, and in those days, we were fairly wealthy. Like I said, I was homeschooled. Um, we did not need or want anything from the community um, because we were self-sufficient um, and, and pretty much took care of our, ourselves within the Muslim community. Um, but unfortunately, after um, addiction, we lost everything and we moved around a lot from Bridgeport to California, coast to coast. Um, my grandmother, um, bless her soul and rest in peace, would you know, think that you could run away from addiction, but there's a hood anywhere USA. So right, yeah. <laughs> there is no outrunning um, addiction. And unfortunately we were just uprooted a lot. Um, but in that journey, you, you, you know, struggle builds character and you do become resilient. And so for me, survival started very early and um, selling drugs is, is, was one of the things that in the community, um, you, you know, you do as you see and certain opportunities are available. I, I tell people that if you've met a child or a young teenager or a young adult who's arrested for selling drugs, your first indication should be there's trauma there. And you right. don't you never start the story with the arrest because there's no child who would resort to those things if they were provided for adequately. And so when you see um, someone in that situation, it's a clear indication that there's some neglect and some trauma. And um, the people who are in those situations, as I say, are resilient. They have found a way to survive, to eat, and to provide. And, and that was what it was um, for me. And so I started off, um, in all honesty, at Stick in Nursing School. Um, and when I was arrested, I was in my last semester of nursing school and was kicked out. Now, I was only charged, I wasn't convicted. So I did not know at the time um, that they probably shouldn't have kicked me out of school, right? But if you don't right, know your yeah. right, Young, um, you kind of go and do what people tell you. So, but that's what started my journey, all things for a reason. So I got my degree as a, um, finished my degree in general studies there, went to Bay Path, um, 
and became an occupational therapy assistant, waited for the statute of limitations to run out when I can return to nursing, did my LPN um, at Holyoke Community, then did my RN at Excelsior, continued on um, to Elms for my bachelor's degree, and then just completed my doctorate at UMass. So, and for each degree. That's amazing, um, that's awesome. You know, you go before the board. I was denied for every license. I've been fired from more jobs than I've been hired because you can get a job just until that quarry check. <laughs> until that quarry check comes in after. <laughs> and then it's a game changer. And so um, it's been really important to me to not seal my record and to help other people who have talents um, that should be offered and seen in this world and not hidden um, because of mistakes made in the past. Um, find their journey and find their voice and find their way, um, whether it's in the community or even at the corporate level where they need to understand the importance of diversity and what it's like and what does diversity actually mean and not having it live on the fringes checkbox um, of a corporation and not be embedded in everything that we do in the fabric of everything that we do. So that's, that's me, you know, in a nutshell, I... I love village. Village is what I'm about. I'm all for community. I'm all for healing. I'm all for understanding, especially when it comes to what I would like to call the unfavorables, the easily written off, um, the people that others like to judge. Um, Those are my people. And so this is why I stick to mental health. This is why I stay in community um, because there's a lot of, of gems um, and some really rough patches that just need a little opportunity to be seen. Right. That's amazing. Thank you so much for, for sharing your story. I know that sometimes it's hard to hear or even say, but I think, I think it's really important to, to who you are and it's important to the podcast for people to understand just how important community is for you and open and honesty is. And I think you're right. Um, you know, I think it's very, it's a huge strength for you to keep that open and and kind of kind of point out like, look, this is a part of reality. And and there's actually strength and resilience that comes from this. And that's, that's what makes me who I am. Where, so you mentioned community and village is really important for you. Where did that drive come from for you? you So in all honesty, I'm going to say it's come from growing up in a Muslim community um, because everything in that community was village. You know, we broke bread together, we ate together, we prayed together, we went to school together, we made clothes together. Uh, There's nothing that we didn't do as a community. And when one hurt, all hurt. When one needed, all showed up. And so there was never a sense of oneness. It was a sense of connection. Um, And I think that one of the most disparate, one of the most difficult things for me to adjust to when I left that community was the sense of isolation and that people suffered alone and often had no space to even heal. So it was always trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma with judgment or repercussion, but never that space for understanding and healing and support. And so I feel that in every aspect of what we do, it's, it's the thing that's critically missing. If, if you look at our school system, you know, we're quick to put a police officer there. Um, that sends a message of you do something wrong, you're going to jail. 
uh, if we really wanted to support our kids and if this was a true resource, we would have counselors who are ready to engage at the granular level who understand trauma, who understand um, the reactions to trauma and who are equipped with the skills to teach children how to react differently. Um, you know, it's all in how we view the need and it's how we view the pain. And so um, for me, it's, it's shifting the mindset. You know, when, you're, when a kid is struggling, we're quick to put them in in-house. Well, what does that look like? You know, are we teaching them coping skills in there? Are they meditating? Is there a counselor in there? Is there someone who's getting them grounded and teaching them how to process whatever internal dysregulation that they were feeling? We should be doing so much more for the people that we know are going to be taking care of us in the future. Right. Uh, and we're not giving them, we're not teaching them how to be just good people. You know, we want them to learn how to check a box and take a standardized test when the reality is none of us are standard. So why should anything that we teach our children be as such? Um, we should be celebrating their uniqueness and their individualities, and we should be molding and creating circumstances where they can grow and learn and not the other way around of trying to fit everyone into a box because lazily it's convenient for us. Right. And I think, so this, this is going along the lines of some of the stuff I wanted to talk to you about mental health, but also just about uh, systemic issues and, and programs out there. Um, but before I do that, I, I wanted to just point out something that you said is that it, it's funny because when you look at America in general, there's this big push of individualism, right? Uh, it, it's it's one of the things you think of when you think of the American dream. Oh, we're all individuals. So we do this by ourselves. We get to this point. We pull ourselves up, uh, lace our, our boots up, and tighten our pants, and we get it done. But in 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 looking at the history of that's really what kind of separated a lot of what's gone wrong with systemic racism and oppression in our country is this real uh, individualistic kind of viewpoint on people and then viewing ourselves as as uh, individuals and special and then kind of chastising communities of connection. And I think it's so pertinent that, but you know, as a white American myself, I've never really thought about that until my eyes were open to it. And I think it makes, it makes so much sense, but it's just under that conscious level of, of what people are, you know, talking about or, or doing throughout the state. And so I love that, that, that concept of connection and community and, uh, and village is super important to, to what the drive is for, for healing. Yeah. And, and I think the concept of people, um, I pulled myself up by the bootstraps, you know, it was a great, you know, that you had some self-motivation, but nothing in this world works without someone else. Right, exactly. Without another piece or another dot, whether someone planted a seed, whether someone said, yes, you can do this, whether um, someone accepted something that you said or gave you something to further your thought, you, you didn't do it alone. There was no soulness in that. Um, and sadly, you also did not credit anyone who helped you along your journey. Right. And so it becomes a very selfish and self-centered ideology. But what does it serve in the end? Um, who does it help in the end? Because I would like to say, these are all the great people who have surrounded me and supported me. And let me tell you why I needed them in my life when they showed up um, and why I'm stronger and better because of it. Um, you know, and, and it's to the same that there's no great person who doesn't mentor someone and hasn't been mentored by it or isn't being mentored by someone. And so again, connectedness. 
you know, we all have duty. And so if you say you've done it alone, I, I would challenge anyone, you're not in the world alone. You don't go to work alone. You know, you don't, right. <laughs> everything that you do is connected to something that someone else has been able to provide for you to be able to do what you're doing. Um, it's, it's, it's almost the eye opener, like, oh my God, essential workers, like the same people that you didn't even want to pay, right. but yet you can't get to work without your Dunkin' Donuts coffee or your whole day is going to all of a sudden be, you know, a, a mess. And it's like, you know, cream rises to the top. So when you start at the, at the bottom, when you take care of what's broken, when you take care of who suffers the most, everyone else will benefit. And this is also my point about why I'm such an advocate for black communities. History, research, it's evident that every single race, every other race has bias and prejudice and racism towards black people. So if in essence, we focused on the most broken, every other race would heal. Right. And the biggest example that makes it so evident, and, and my mentor gave this to me, was in reference to the ADA. Um, when the Americans Disabilities Act came out, the sole purpose for, was for people with disabilities. But in essence, every single person benefited. All of a sudden, a mother with a stroller didn't have to carry it up the stairs. There was a ramp. People who were overweight had wider seats. They had handlebars. There was things that were in place that just made life better for everyone. So if we focused on the most broken and understand that everything in society has been set up to exclude a certain group deliberately and that we have to dismantle some of these structures in order to heal, you know, we're not going to make a whole lot of progress. And I hear, you know, and I, and I, not to jump all over, like even with the police brutality and the training, you kind of have to be a willing participant and, and be in a space where you're even acknowledging there's a problem. You can't train a group of people who don't even acknowledge right. there's an issue. So therefore that option is no longer on the table. You can't acknowledge there's an issue. We can't keep um, suffering because of your, your ignorance and your position that you want to hold, which is futile. Because if you really want better, then you would do better and you would gravitate towards being better. So right. let's leave that alone. We need the resources. We need to make sure that the support is going um, where support is actually needed so that we can accomplish the things that we need to accomplish. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I think, you know, if you look into psychology and, and mental health uh, practices, that the whole theory of stages of change and, and, you know, how you make change and the process you go through it, the very first one that you're in is, is not even recognizing that there's a need for change. And so yeah. you, can't, you can't progress towards change if you're not recognizing it. And so sometimes it's like, okay, well, we're here now. So that's, that, it doesn't even make sense to waste breath on that. Let's just support the area that we know needs change yeah. and, and start building that up. So if that does come around, now we can have an easy flow into it, it an easier flow into it than we would have had before, where it's just a shock to the system. Yeah. And, and, and there's so many structures that I don't even think people understand how embedded and, and, you know, racism, mental health. I, I, I tell people right now in this era, black people are fighting two battles. You know, people of color are, are, are black and brown are fighting two battles. We have a, a pandemic that's affecting us at high rates. Yeah. We don't have resources to be able to 
socially distanced in the way, you know, many families are clustered and essential workers at the same time. Um, and, and then we're fighting racism, which is inducing all sorts of trauma that you still have to go up and, and you know, hold yourself together in the presence of people while you're explaining and justifying and trying to get people to understand why you feel uh, a certain way about certain, you know, things that are happening now. And it's, it's mind boggling that in 2020, we're still just here. And so that goes to say that it's time now to be more about action and really moving with the people who are ready to move and not getting stuck in the, just in the, in the politics of it all. Like, the, you know, there's just no more room for us to move in, in that direction. There's just too much suffering on too many levels. There's no, I tell people, even in healthcare, if you look at something as simple as the food chart, you know, if I go to the doctor and I'm overweight, and you show me this food chart and it's got, you know, milk and eggs and I'm lactose intolerant and milk and cheese. I'm lactose intolerant. Most African-Americans are. So that's, all, you know, we're not doing that. Right. Then you're going to show me eggplant and squash. You got to eat this so you can be healthy. And I'm saying, I don't even know anything about that. Not once did you ask me what vegetables do I eat right. and how do I as an individual consume them. So if I don't follow your chart automatically, I'm not inherent and don't follow recommendations. No, you have yet to even know who I am. You have yet to even ask me an individualized question. You've clustered me. Right. You know? Because I think we do that in mental health all the time. We fail to take into account um, culture. culture. I got, I got, <laughs> I'm just, this is an aside, but I got into this argument with someone when I was very early on, I think I was working at, MHA in Springfield, <laughs> the residential programs, and there was a training, and someone was presenting on um, access to like the, the personality disorders, which there's no accesses anymore, but whatever. Um, and they were they were presenting on on I can't remember exactly which disorder, and I raised my hand and I said, well, you know, I think it's hard to categorize people based on this because cultural situations are different for each person so what we're viewing from this privileged you know let, let's call it a dog a dog like psychology and 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 uh health practices all started from white people their perspective and then a lot of times a lot of the information we found was from you know these experiments that were, were terrible to people of color and really hurt people of color and you know i think I'm not sure if it was you or someone posted recently today about um, eugenics and, and there was this period of time where there was a lot of sterilization yeah, happening. Yeah, that. yeah. And, and that um, long ago. No, that was, that was like 50 years ago. <laughs> and so when you look back in, in that is that, so yeah, I remember I, I got kind of talked down to because I, I just had a bachelor's at the time and the, the person leading it had a master's and she's like, no, you don't understand. Like, this is kind of how it's set up. And I, I still remember it to this day because the, you know, the, the inability to even have that conversation was so ingrained at that moment. And that higher, like, no, I did this, you didn't do this. So you, your, your point doesn't count where it could have just been a very easy, like, okay, I, I see where you're coming from. I don't think it's really this, but let's entertain that conversation and maybe we can figure something out. 
acknowledgement. <laughs> a little acknowledgement. Just a little bit would go a long we're way. Still, really. We're still struggling with that piece right there. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, it, it's 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 amazing that you know I have to tell people that. So I'm a, I, one of the, the the theories that I like is a critical race theory, um, and the critical race theory, you know, was born out of the nineteen. Um, 70s during the civil rights movement when a lot of black people were getting locked up and what happened was lawyers started telling the story of the individuals being charged so that there was an understanding of on a humanistic approach um, about why people got to where um, they came to be and i i think that that is the fundamental part about where we need to get so people need to hear and listen to other people's stories you have to for a minute pause in your thinking and even acknowledge that maybe you're thinking and seeing things still through the lens of your own ancestors because you have yet to unweed what's healthy and what's not what's real and what's not what's true history and what's not and so a lot of views have been passed along dinner table style um and until you can unweed all of that and learn a little bit more and open up yourself you know we really Put ourselves you know at a disadvantage um so I, and i think your point's well taken for me it, there's so much introspection that needs to happen right that's not that's not happening or, or never really happened for where these things that we we feel are natural or ingrained get passed down to us and we we have to start kind of questioning our role in that um and i i'm speaking for, for white people like me, people of, of high privilege, you know, I'm, I'm on that top tier being a white, straight, male, able-bodied, um, you know, you, you don't get much higher on privilege than, than I do. And I think for so long, it was really hard for me to, to pay attention to that because I felt helpless in the sense of like, what do I do? What can I do? And, and where do I fit in? And I think really what you're, what you're, what I must, I'm hearing you say is, is, paying attention to this, looking at these patterns, looking at um, the epigenetics of, of just how we evolve as a family is passing down information to each other. That's the work that needs to happen because then you start to see where the patterns are broken or, or where they oppress other people where you may not have ever seen it before. And that, that's how change is affected. Yeah. And, you know, we all have to acknowledge that the lack of history true real history you know being taught um or being only taught through the lens of a white man who, who historically want to be viewed in favor or in power or in strength um a one-sided story and so we can really acknowledge that's been an injustice on both sides i also can't imagine how difficult it must be to have to question everything that you were taught everything that you were told everything that you learned um, as a white person and have to figure out at, at what point now is, is this true? You know, what is the reality? For us, it's always been a learning experience. There's been no luxury of not finding out your history because it's not being taught. So you, you, you become a seeker of knowledge, you become a seeker right. of information because your, your existence is dependent upon it. But when, you know, as a white person, your history is delivered to you on silver platter um, and spoon fed to you with, with silver spoons, it's very difficult to then untangle, right. you know? It's very difficult to even research. I, I mean, for as many things as people can get on Google, 
they still expect black people to be the sole educators of, well, explain this to me, right. you know, how about you look into something and we can have a dialogue about it together. You are exactly. it's still the burden of, we have to feel it, dismantle it, express it, teach you about it, hope that you get it, you know, debate you. It's right. so much and still live it. And it, it you know, and it, it, it's, it's odd that, I don't know if odds, it's fucked up, I guess is the, is the right, right, right word to, to use. Um, because when you look at it, there, there's such a history of white people taking that role. No, you do this. You tell me about this. You, you give me the information. You tell me who you are, where you came from. You tell me the history that you've had to, you show me all this stuff. And it feeds into that, that very early on slavery mentality where white people would, would often be like, well, you know, black people, they're lazy. Yet they're doing all the work to make this person wealthy and live a life of luxury. And it just feeds into that mentality. Uh, at least that, for me, it feeds into that. And, and I think that's a lot of the conversations I'm having with, you know, friends of mine or, or family of, of mine is about this introspection. Like, don't go to your black friends and ask them to tell you what's what. <laughs> go out there and, and research it, pick up a book. I've been telling a lot of people, you know, to pick up White Fragility because it's a really great book from the perspective of a white person looking at their own racism. And it's really good to do that work. And it's palatable for someone who is just entering that kind yeah. of um, covenant of, of seeking truth, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I had a thought and I just... I just got heated, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I had a thought and um, just like that, it was gone. It'll come back. It'll come back. So, so we're talking a lot about, uh, about these uh, racist overtures and, and stigma that exists. Can you talk a little bit about the stigma of mental health? Like we've mentioned a little bit about it, but doing the work, I think... Um, it's a huge stigma that's out there. Um, what have you encountered in your work, like some of the stigmas that are out there and how, how do you work in the face of that with clients or with um, people that you work with? So speaking as a, a, a black doctor in behavioral health, there, we have a lot of challenges that we face, you know, even, you know, even explaining to some of, some of my colleagues that, um, when the whole George Floyd situations, for instance, was occurring, you know, this is hugely traumatic. And there's people going, people of color who are going to see a therapist and they're not bringing this up because their therapist is white and they're protecting their comfort level. Right. You know, we're still not at a place where we can recognize certain behaviors in people. Um, the stigma just in the community as a whole it's, it's an, they're unfavorables. You know, there's, it's not as if there's a, um, a test. And so you could take a blood work and get a number or a level. So you're dealing with matters of emotion, chemical imbalances, the heart, things that can be disruptive, dysregulated, difficult to understand, and limited resources, right? Let's face it, there's limited resources. And it's so scary because it's not talked about. It's not ingrained in, in the fabric of what we do. We're, we're one of the only countries that people don't automatically go see a therapist like they go see your regular doctor's appointment. You know, it's, it would be absurd that people aren't getting mental health treatment. And to live in this country and not get mental health treatment, 
when there's so much trauma being witnessed, seen from TV, to, no matter where you go, you know, it's difficult um, to know that we haven't gotten to a place where it's just natural, where it's still not um, cohesive with just healthcare in, in general. And so from a, a macro level, we need to do a lot better by the services and the resources and the funding to make sure that there is, you know, mental health services in, in every area of what people are doing. Um, there should be some support that people have. And at the micro level, the education, we need to be having these conversations with our children. You know, when I, I go into the schools and I, and I look at kids and I'm telling you, look around the room. Tell me about the person who's alone. Why haven't you gone to speak to that person? There should be no one in this cafeteria alone. You know, going to a group of kids when free lunch wasn't free and you see kids eating and throwing away food and there's someone who hasn't eaten and they were all friends. And I said, where's your, where's your food? It's like, oh, I, I haven't been able to pay for it. And I have to look at their village and say, aren't you guys all friends? Yes, then everybody needs to take something off of their plate to make another plate. We always feed each other. No one should ever be hungry. But if we're not teaching our children that because we're focused on check boxes, stigma's not gonna go away. If we're not noticing that children may be in a classroom and it's 90 degrees and they have one long sleeve shirt that their peers aren't recognizing that somebody might need some support. We're failing yet another generation. So at every level, we're not gonna combat stigma if we're not willing to look the wound, look dead into the wound and start cleaning it out and addressing it for what it is. And that's stigma on every level. You know, within mental health, you know, even if you get to that point, it's, you know, are, is every group being, being treated the same? Is every group being offered the same amount of resources? Is every group getting the same amount of support? And, and I can tell you, no, um, no. I, I can tell you if I had even watching treatment, you could have a, a, a white client who is not taking care of themselves, poor ADLs, things like that, and a black client that exactly the same thing, hair sticking up, not taking care of ADLs. There's a comfort level with encouraging the white person to get into the shower. There's a resistance to telling the black person that their hair is looking crazy and then they also need to get in the shower. And I'm often telling people there shouldn't be a resistance to patients that are both suffering in the same way. That's your bias in your discomfort with being able to approach someone that is not like you. And so exactly. in that bias, that other person is now suffering because you refuse to treat them because you're not comfortable. So the stigma overlays everything. Yeah. That's an amazing point because you just see, oftentimes when you look at stigma, you see the clear signs of it right the, those blatant things and i think the same thing with oppression and racism you see these blatant, blatant racists and you're like that's not me that's not me i don't do that um but i think it, it does over everything right like how you approach things how you hold things um you know, if you cross the street if someone's count, coming down the way even that sense of covering up or making sure your keys are in the pocket or or no matter what kind of stigma we're talking about is there there's these subtle things that happen and until we can see that and start to heal that look at it and hold ourselves accountable it's going to persist and as long as that discomfort and, and people have to acknowledge there's a discomfort with being around black people you don't feel comfortable and you know i i, I do a project with people i i tell them um 
you know, if you're a provider, I'm going to give you three names and I want you to tell me if, any, if anything comes up with those three names, right? So I'm going to say um, Wyatt, Muhammad, Shaniqua. Did you get a visual? Yeah. Yeah. So before your patient has even stepped foot in front of you, your mind has already started creating scenarios about what you're starting to, to see, right? Exactly, yeah. So if Jamal comes into your office and Jamal has high blood pressure and Jamal smells like marijuana and you've already got an image of what you think Jamal is or how he's going to react or he must be from the streets or, or whatever um, assumptions that you've now made, you're gonna, you know, if, 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 if you were comfortable, you might talk to Jamal about his diet you might tell them about different medication options. You might go about exercise, but now because you have this anxiety internally, you want this to be kind of quick and over with. So you're just gonna tell Jamal about the medication, right? Right. Jamal automatically picks up that there's a slight. And now he doesn't even wanna take the medication because he's like, this guy didn't even talk to me about anything else. He's just trying to shove a pill down my throat, right? Never found out that Jamal works three jobs, that Jamal is married and takes care of his children, right? That, you know, you never even asked the question about who Jamal was because your assumptions got in the way, which right. created some anxiety, which became a barrier to your treatment plan, which in result created a disparity, a continued disparity in the community. You know, stigma, bias, assumptions, it all interplays and this is why there's such gaps in disparity. Um, and people have to acknowledge this is more than a, a systems error. This is a personal reflection and knowing that you got to take some ownership on that feeling. You got to kind of, oh God, yeah, that's that feeling. Let me, you know, explore that. And let me talk to Jamal. Let me just, let me explore if my assumptions are even correct. Right. You know? So it, we have a long way to go, but I'm, I, I'm always an optimist. Um, always. And I always believe good is always going to win. And I see people having conversations that 10 years ago would never have occurred. You know, we wouldn't say racism out loud. I wouldn't say white people out loud. I just wouldn't because that's going to invoke some sort of problem, right? Now people are having conversations. Now there's a curiousness. There's a willingness to learn um, that has been long overdue, has been long overdue. People want to know, what's your story? How do you feel about that? What's your perspective on that? You know, that's important. You just brought something up to me when you were talking about saying white people. There was a show, I think it's still going on on Netflix called Dear White People. And it's, it's funny to me because it got so much flack when it first came out. How dare, how dare they do this? How dare they do this? But that's the whole premise of the show is that inequality, inequity of, of saying that like it's so much of what the show is about is is that that concept. And it, it's almost hilarious if it wasn't so messed up that that people are, are not even paying attention to the show and just responding to that title when the whole show is about what we're talking about right now and, and, and calling that stuff out. But this is what we do. We, we react to, to titles, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that Black Lives Matter infuriates people. 
Yeah. Like just the terminology and, and, and guarantee you people who are really upset have researched nothing, <laughs> you know, um, or they did their research on or, YouTube <laughs> or Facebook or whatever. everything that's going to like validate your, your, your feelings of hatred and anger and like not rooted in anything remotely educational. Um, you know, but just the feeling of saying that could invoke such a feeling inside of people. Mm. It's really scary. You know, like, why does that make you so angry? Like, think about why that feeling just rolled up in your belly about another person saying that. Like, not matters more than, <laughs> you know, not higher than. Basic. Just matters. Yeah. You know, it feeds back into to white people want, wanting that easy fix or you know, people of color to do the work for them. Well, why don't you just add two on the end of Black Lives Matter? Why don't you just do that and it, it make it clear? But again, it's, you don't have to. Like, yeah. it's not your job to do that. People should spend that time educating themselves on exactly what, what's being said there and, and sit with that and tolerate that feeling and understand where it's coming from and then start changing things so it's not there. But I, I think that's also the, the issue, right? The fragility right. part. Yeah, it's, exactly. Uh, I can't stand this feeling of not being right. I can't stand this <laughs> feeling of being uncomfortable. What is this uncomfortableness that you're all of a sudden asking me to sit in and accept? And it's like, well, welcome to the party. Right. Like, well, well, welcome to the party. Like, this is a constant feeling of checking and, and wondering and, you know, trying to make sure people don't have a view of you. So welcome to the club. And you're getting a micro slice and you're melting. Yeah, the and whole, just the the whole perception. movement. <laughs> people upset with, with white, women, white women being called Karen and just melting over it. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the worst thing ever has happened, even though there's Karen-esque things that are happening all over. Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it's unbelievable. It's like, well, this is a, a hate word. And I'm like, we have so far to go. Yeah. We're I like, like to joke with people that... I'm okay with being wrong because I have a five-year-old daughter at home and I'm constantly wrong, <laughs> wrong in her eyes. So I've just learned to be like, okay, let yep. me shift yep. a little bit. Absolutely. Um, and for me, I have a village. You know, I've raised nine kids, his, mine's, and ours. Um, so the battle, the conversations can't stop. You know, the fight can't stop. I want my, I want to know what it feels like to be free. I want to know what it feels like to not think about the color of my skin when I go out the door. I want to know what it feels like to not have to wonder if I'm gesticulating too much or making people uncomfortable or am I using my words correctly? Am I talking too fast? Am I appropriate in the setting? I want to know what it feels like to be judgment free, to be just accepted, to not have to question if I'm getting the best options, the best care, if I'm being told the truth, if you know, I'm getting the best rate. I, I don't want to, I don't want my kids to have to fight for their pay. I want them to be paid what they're worth. You know, on the dollar, black women, 25, 25 cents on the dollar. You know, if you make more than that, you're, you're an outlier. I don't, I'm, I'm an outlier. I'll be damned if I don't change the tone for everybody else coming behind me, right? This is why I'm gonna tell my story because I'm not going to accept that other people don't get an opportunity, a chance, 
um, to sit at that table and make things better for other people just because of the color of the skin of a mistake made in the past. Um, there's just no more room for any of us to live like this. All of our children are gonna suffer if we can't get this right. All of our children will suffer if we don't tell history the way it should be told, honestly, you know, in the fabric of every conversation. You know, if you're gonna tell me about what happened in the war, I wanna know about all of the players in the war. You know, not just the ones that you wanna glorify. We, we even talk about statues, you know, this is my history. I don't need to walk by a slave block no. for you to have your history. I mean, if that's the case, let's just put up statues of Nat Turner right. and call it what it is. Since let's we're gonna be comfortable with that part of the history, let's- Let's see how white people- <laughs> See how you feel about Nat Turner's everywhere. Let's call the school Nat Turner School in, in, in the white area. You know, not, not in our community. We're gonna call it Nat Turner School in your communities and see how comfortable that feels for you. I can guarantee you will cause an uproar. And so hearing our story, understanding different perspectives all around the table, you know, I have people who laugh and I'm like, oh my God, you watch Fox, you watch all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. No. Are you kidding me? I need to know how everyone feels about a topic because I don't need just my perspective. I don't even want to be surrounded with people that think like Khadijah. Yeah. I don't. I want to be surrounded with agitators. I want to be surrounded with people who have opposing views. I want to be surrounded with all sorts of differences. Because in that mix, in the center of all of that, is our commonality. It's the thing that's going to make us all better. And so I don't want to be around like-minded people. That does me no good. I can't grow. It's going to make me stagnant. I want to be around others that think differently, that act differently that have a different perspective, a different experience, that can teach me something and are willing to learn in return from me. Um, and if we can't share that, we're not gonna grow. If I can't understand that you've been gypped in history too, so I have to know that you're gonna have blind spots that you're completely unaware of, we're not gonna be able to grow in this conversation because my assumption is that you should know better, you shouldn't know better. You've been gypped. Right. <laughs> you've been gypped. We've all been gypped. You, you know, so you don't know what you don't know. Um, we use sayings all the time that are just embedded in racism, but it's in our culture. We don't know. Oh, she's going to just let him hang himself. Right. I've said it. You said it. We've all said stuff like this. Like it's in our culture. It's like walking around in Springfield, taking a nice deep breath and thinking that you're breathing the best air in the world. And just because you don't see the smog, like Springfield has the worst air in what the United States, like we're like, <laughs> We're like there, um, but when you walk outside, do you know it? There goes racism. There goes mental health. You know, we act like it's not there, but it's everywhere. You know, it's everything that you see. It's everything that you touch. It's everything that you do. It's every encounter that you have. You know, it's every connection that you make. I promise you, has a mental health impact. You can be in the grocery store. Your interaction with that checker can either make or break their day. Your smile might be the one smile that helps them through the next moment. Connectedness. And until we realize no one pulled themselves up by the bootstrap. That's just corny. Nobody yeah. does that. <laughs> no Not real. Does. Let your ego go. Like that's fallacy. That's like, uh, you know, no. No, you weren't born into this. You didn't birth yourself. <laughs> you know, like yeah. connectedness. You, you couldn't come into this world without 
a partnership. So no, we don't get to do things solo. We don't get to act like our decisions don't affect someone else. Honestly, I would love to live in a world where your money is no good. You know why? Because then you would have to bring your skills and your talents to the table. Yeah. Then you would be forced to connect with people who could offer what you don't have and you would truly be a village. But because we've made everything a pay for fee, solo, solo, greed, 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 yeah. you know, we're not winning. One of my favorite books is um, called Ishmael and mm -hmm. it's, it's by an anthropologist and I think his name is Daniel Quinn. And the story of Ishmael is, it's weird because it's, it's told through a telepathic gorilla mm -hmm. to a human, which is it's a little, little sci-fi to start, but, but really it's based in this concept of um, what we've lost through the agricultural revolution and how we moved from being a connected village to now a more individualized space once we started putting food under lock and key and having to pay for it or starting that system. Whereas before it was all hey, you can do this, I can do this, we can live in harmony and help each other out. And for the most part, obviously, that's a generalization of, of, of history. But, and I remember reading it, my brother gave it to me, and I think I was in eighth grade when I read it, eighth or ninth grade, and it just blew my mind because, one, I, I'm super sci-fi and fantasy, so it's like, oh, a telepathic gorilla. And then two, it just kind of unlocked so much stuff that I had been thinking about, because at a young age, I'm like, why do we have money? Why don't we just like trade or like support each other? And why does this exist? And that was just a hundred percent. And it gets more complex, but that that's a huge takeaway that connects to what you're talking about too. Like I could be a village mom all day. I could, like, <laughs> you know, but I come from, you know, the Muslim community, I, I tell you, gave me that sense of belonging all the time. You know, even when we're taught, we're taught about us, we're taught for us. You know, we eat together, we cook together, you know, you pray together. There's just, I couldn't tell a sibling from another a, a student because we were always together all the time. And when I say village mom, if I'm out of line, I didn't have to wait for my mom to grab me up and, and just guarantee you're going to get a tenfold because every mother in the village is going to deal with you. Um, but it also gives you that great sense of responsibility because you also teach that to those underneath you you know, the younger ones. And, and so I hold that so dear because if we could just remember that we're all connected and that we all have an obligation to make things better, to serve, to not let bad behaviors be okay. You know, like right. if we all took a stance against bad behaviors, people would be less apt to do them. But if we're complacent, you're accepting of it, which makes you just as bad as, you know, the problem. Even the trauma with the police department. Do I think that the police have a job? Absolutely. Absolutely. They don't solve crimes. They respond to crime, we know, but they have a job, right? We want them to be able to do their job. We don't need them to be doing every job. It's ridiculous, yeah. right? Let's take away all the things and put the resources where they need to go so that they can focus, but in the same breath, if you come to a community and you tell us that we have crime because we're not snitching on the folks in our community and we're civilians and you are there to uphold the law, you cannot then say that 
you know you have bad cops and you don't oust them because of a blue line. You can't hold the citizens' right. community to a higher standard than people who are supposed to uphold the law. You no longer can say it's only 1% because then that means 99% are allowing it and that can't be the case. Or you're telling me that 1% is so powerful that the 99% can't say anything and are repressed in that system. Right. And then that, that also is hugely concerning. We are not training our officers appropriately. A six-month academy is a disrespect to the community and to the officers' lives. I cannot be a doctor or a nurse in a six-month six training. Months, yeah. I cannot be responsible for other people's lives. I'm not understanding why that would be acceptable for people who are responsible to be on the street. Um, it, it's ridiculous. You know, they need more mental health training and support. They don't have that and they need pay. They keep their hands in the cookie jar and they're continuously breaking crime <laughs> because you are not paying them for the risk and... that they are taking. Yeah. So let's talk about both sides of the coin. All right. They're not getting trained. They're not getting paid. They're in communities where they're fearful and they, they can't speak out about injustice either. The system is broken. No one is winning in this place, not the officers or the community. And we all deserve better. Like every, every piece of that should be better. I would never take that risk for that pay. <laughs> I, I, I work in behavioral health, high acuity. Yeah. <laughs> what you gonna pay me for that? No. <laughs> what you gonna pay me for that? You know, to ask our officers to, to do that with very little training. First of all, they should be spending a year on a site floor as part of their training. Automatically, trauma-informed care. You should not be in the community with a gun if you're not equally armed with trauma-informed care, they need psychiatric evaluations, drug testing. It's a traumatic job, but you don't get trauma services. So where do you go with that trauma? You're going to be reactionary in the community. So there's a lot of things, I think. And that power diffuse just kind of shoots right down. So, so our community will not heal if we don't make some serious changes in the structures that are surrounding the communities. You know, I want, even when we're looking at food stamps, these people don't need, they buy this junk food and all this blah, 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 chips and blah, blah, blah. Okay, well, food stamps comes once a month. I don't know, how long do your berries stay fresh in the refrigerator? Right. Not to mention, how far is the grocery store? How many bags can you carry on the bus? Like, do you understand this is like a real struggle? Why can't food stamps come once a week? Same amount, once a week. Break it up. That way people can eat and sustain. Exactly. It's, yeah. not, it's, it's not rocket science. No, it's not. Like, if I can go to New York and on every corner there's a fresh food bodega and I can grab fruit and vegetables, how come we can't have that on every corner? We had a tornado. Did we not plant fruit trees? Could we plant just maybe one or two fruit trees in the community? Right. I ate crap growing up. I mean, <laughs> I'm okay. You know, could we not have done things to support the community that we live and serve? Can we not do better in the communities? 
that we live and serve. Of course we can. What are we doing? What are we doing? Police officers in, in schools without counselors and therapists? These are babies with trauma who most are triggered by uniforms. Like one-on-one guys, this is why we don't wear uniforms in psych right. because we don't want to trigger people. This is why you don't see us in white coats because we don't want to trigger people. We want to be approachable. Hey guys, let go of that and let that cop leave that uniform at home. Put on some khakis and a button up shirt or a sweatshirt and like come and talk to the kids and get right. on their level. And really, what are we doing? It's all about that engagement, that relationship. Absolutely. And building that trust and having those conversations and teaching them so they can grow and be better. Kids are like sponges, you know? Mm -hmm. What are you giving them the sponge on to? What are you showing them? I'm, I'm telling you, me, when I go out, you're still gonna see me with my, I went to work with my Pumas on the other day, you know, it, it's, it's because people say, oh my God, you don't look like a doctor. And I say, bingo, yeah. bingo. Let's change the image of what you think your doctor should look like. Exactly. This is what your doctor looks like. This is your doctor. Yeah. Right? This is what it is. That's why so, I don't cover my arm with my tattoos. That's why I grow yeah. my beard. I tell people, listen, some people hang their arm. I choose to wear mine. <laughs> <laughs> Take it for what it is. But that's who I am. But I, I, I'm compassionate. I get it. I'll listen to you. I'll support you. You know, I, I want to know your story. I want to help you navigate. You know, I want to be the one who puts the night lights in the road so that you're not stumbling in the dark because I've already done that for you. You know, no need. I want to be that person. And so that's village. I, you know, when I tell people, no, my record's open. They're like, oh my God, why did you do that? You know, you could see it makes life so much easier. I said, easier for who? Ah, uh, it's such a... Such an awesome way to end the podcast. It's like full circle, connects with everything we're talking about. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. You are very welcome. Thank you. Thank and you. We'll be in touch. Let's, yes, let's talk more and collaborate a little bit. And yeah, always. Yeah, more. that's it. It will never be the end now. The partnership is on. Welcome <laughs> to the village. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you or someone you know would like to be on the podcast, please outreach to us at info at thepromethianproject.org. If you want to learn more about the Promethean Project or if you would like to donate to our cause, you can reach us at thepromethianproject.org. If you really do enjoy this podcast, please share with your friends. Please like our posts on social media, on Instagram and on Facebook. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or any podcast app that you like to listen to. Again, thank you for taking a listen. And remember that the most important step is always the next one.